I want to talk to you today about the importance of unity in the body of Christ. What a beautiful thing it is when we have brothers and sisters in God, family members even, and relatives, husbands and wives. And as we as a group follow God and walk together, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing for God to see us in unity, pursuing God's plan for the world, for our lives. And it's a a strength that we can get from each other when one goes through a hard time, the others can jump in and bring encouragement and strength. And I know I've needed that in my life where I've had a hard season and the ones that I'm close to jump in and and add strength to me as I go through my moment and, and vice versa. We have a saying around our group, our family, that says, have mercy on me when I'm going through a hard time. And then when you go through your hard time, I'll have mercy on you. And we try not to overly judge each other. So in, we're going to start in Philippians. I'll read chapter 2. Paul is writing to the church here in Philippians. It says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort in love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. So Paul even is writing to the church and saying, if you want to make me proud, if you want to make me happy and complete as a a father of the faith, be like-minded, have the same heart, the same joy, the same love, being of one cord and of one mind. I'm going to hold your finger there. We'll come back there. But we'll read another verse in Psalms. And I want to show you the importance of us finding unity. If you're in unity with God, then the people that you're walking with, you become one. You work together. God works through you as a group and strengthens you as a group. And it makes it much, so much more difficult for the enemy to discourage you, distract you, to take you off course, because you have a group of believers that are with you. This is why marriage is so important to be in unity. This is why when you are with a church or in a group that you're in unity, that you're not one to cause division. Sometimes even being right, I've noticed some people like to cause division because they're right on a verse or two. And I've seen that many times where someone will have a verse or two that they have a a good context in, and they'll go inside of a church and blow it up and say, your pastor got it wrong, this is what it means, so therefore you need to listen to me. And they cause disunity because their heart isn't to, to help. Their heart is to be the one in charge or the one in the lead. Well, again, we're focusing on how important it is for us to be in unity together. We'll read out of Psalm 133. Oh, how good and how pleasant is it for brethren to dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aram, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountain of Zion, For there the Lord commanded the blessings, life forevermore. So God is so pleased when he sees a group of people, maybe the group is two or three or bigger, that are walking in unity. With social media today, there's so many opinions about God, it's really difficult to find anyone walking in unity. This is a missing part of the gospel, I believe, in our world today, that we're missing part of the gospel because we can't walk in unity. Much of the ability for God to move on this earth 
And for God to work through a group of people on this earth is lost because of lack of unity. There's a difference between having a bunch of independent people walking together versus having a group of people walking together as one. The scripture calls us the body of Christ. And he's the head. No man's the head of the body. A pastor's not the head of the body. An apostle's not the head of the body. Christ is the head of the body. And everyone else, every other believer, whether you're, you have a calling of the fivefold ministry, a prophet, a pastor, an evangelist, teacher, whatever you may be part of in the body of Christ, whatever you are an entrepreneur or you're in the helps, whatever part you play, you're still part of the body. Jesus is still the head. And just like your body, your head tells your hand what to do and it does it. Well, that's what God wants to do with us, is he wants to be the head of a body that listens and a body that's in unity. How are you going to walk when you can't get your left foot to join in with your right foot? And God is limited by his body. And that's why he's got such a cry out today for a group of believers to be in unity. Now, when I say this, it doesn't necessarily mean just church alone. It could be people who haven't found a good church yet. You can be in unity with God, and we're going to share a little bit about that in a moment. Verse 2, I'm back in Philippians chapter 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Now, when I was young and started off as a youth pastor, I was blessed. I was in a large church and ended up having the largest youth group in town, mostly because I was part of a very good, healthy, large church. And so whenever there was a plan for the city youth Christians to get together, they really wanted our youth group to join them. And it was a good thing until I ran into some problems where there was a difference in standards. One of the issues I had was the other youth groups like to use secular music, and I did not like to use secular music from the pulpit. And so I had to take a stand when we got together was I really don't like secular music from the pulpit. You know, as far as personal listening, that's individual. But from the pulpit, I believe the standard needs to be high and holy. Well, I ran into trouble with other youth groups because they all like to use secular music. Well, my answer was, well, we just won't join you on this one. And and they began to get mad at me because my refusal to bring my youth teenagers into a setting where the leaders were propagating secular music. And I understand the intent, but uh, sometimes you have to decide, is this a, uh, one argument I had was, there was a whole group getting together for the youth, and they wanted my youth group to come. And I said, well, uh, I can't agree, though, with the secular music portion of, of your plan for the night. And they said, well, well, it's, it's to reach out to the kids. It's to be an outreach. And I said, great. If it's an outreach, I'll send my leaders. Because I'm all for outreaches. You're doing whatever you can to get people to know God. So I'll send my leaders. But they didn't want my leaders. They wanted my youth. I said, well, you kind of have to decide, is this an outreach or is this a ministry to Christian youth? Because there is a difference. We don't need to sacrifice our Christian kids to the world to try to win the world. We need to help our Christian kids to be strong, to stand against the world. We don't need to teach our Christian kids how to be worldly to try to get them. And and so I began to run into some trouble. One pastor sent me a 12-page letter of why I wasn't saved because I refused to join in my group 
with their groups, mainly over the secular music struggle that I had. And I wasn't against using secular music as an outreach, but I was against using it as a, from the platform to minister to Christian kids. And it ended up being a big trouble for me, but I, I held my ground. and I was immature, of course. I was 19 years old, 20. But still, I had conviction about secular music from the pulpit. And this is the one, some of the verses that they used to try to tell me that I needed to be in unity. And we would have citywide meetings sometimes where all the churches would send in their pastors. The youth pastors did it and the pastors did it. And we'd all sit together about once a month and and fellowship. It was very good. It was very honorable. And you had all kinds of different groups. You had the Baptist group, the Pentecostal group. You had the United Church group. You had different groups that believed in Jesus. And we'd get together and every once in a while we'd try to get a a plan together where we would get together as, as a body in the city and try to bring as much salvation as we could. And we were always for that. And the concept was this. Maybe you've heard this. We'll never see revival if we don't have unity. We'll never see revival if we don't have unity. So we need to have unity. And I was you know, young and in these pastoral meetings, and they would begin to schedule out the, the monthly citywide group things, and we would organize it, and they would begin to hand out different roles for each month. So uh, one church got to be over the praise and worship one month, the other one provided the preaching, the other one provided the church building, and then it would rotate. It was quite unique that we'd have a city of churches working together like that. But the problem was when I got in these meetings and they began to hand out the rules, we would, as a group, begin to discuss what a citywide church meeting looked like. And especially when it was my turn to be in charge of the praise and worship or the preaching or the altar services because they all got nervous that I would pray in tongues or lay hands on people. Or our worship would be too exciting, and we'd lift our hands. And because some churches don't believe in lifting your hands, so when you what some churches don't believe in praying in tongues, some churches don't believe in laying hands or having altar calls. <laughs> one time, I was the MC over one of these meetings, and I was just my job to MC it and to kind of let it let the service go smoothly. And it was really brilliant. It was a great service. The preacher. I think was from the United Church of Canada. He preached a very great sermon. And we have 20, 15, 20 churches represented here. And uh, so he preached a good sermon. And then he, he, I'm done. He turned it back over to me. So I got up and got excited because I wasn't raised in church. I was not raised in Sunday school. My experience with church was with a church I would belong to. So I learned from my pastors how to act and how to have a service. I didn't dawn on me that there were other ways that people had services. And so when the man finished preaching, I was shocked that he didn't have an altar call because it was really a good sermon. And why didn't he invite people to respond to what he preached? Because that's what I was always seen and trained. You know, the altar call is a moment for you to give people a chance to respond to God for whatever was spoken. And so I got up MC and said, man, that was such a great sermon. 
for my brother from the United Church. If you need more of God, then I want you to come up to the altar here and stand at the altar, and we'll have some of the ministers pray with you. And so I was a pretty good MC. I, I ended up coaxing a number of young men and women to come up to the altar, and there was quite a few up there at the altar. And then I, I was looked at all the other youth pastors and all the other ministers there in the room and invited them to come up. Like, come on, come on up and pray for the young, our young people who are responding to the altar. And as I invited them to come up, they hesitantly walked up there. I mean, we had a couple of Pentecostal guys and Church of God guys, and they were on it fast, and they knew what to do because that's kind of in all our Pentecostal roots, you know. And uh, But majority of the churches had no idea what I was doing. So the, these guys came up, and they stood behind their youth and, and just stood there and looked and had no idea that, that I was expecting them to pray for them, to talk to them, to, to minister to them personally in that moment. And so I got in a lot of trouble for doing that. And, and many votes I lost when we would get together and plan these meetings. All right, now we just want to be clear. We're all in agreement. This is how the meeting is going to look. There's no praying in tongues. And then everyone would look at me. Okay, no praying in tongues. No lifting hands during worship. What about the verses? Well, no, that verse doesn't count for today. I mean, so many, no praying for the sick. Some of the churches don't believe in praying for the sick. And so there were so many rules, and all the standards were really against my core beliefs of anointing and believing in God for miracles and, and all those things. And so constantly I had to stand down on areas just to find unity because the saying was, how are we going to have revival if we don't have unity? And I don't doubt that you've been in this kind of fight before, whether it's personal in your family or if it's with your your own home. Sometimes we come into a clash when it comes to finding unity together on serving God. Some people will come to our church, and, and I remember Pastor David preach. he get very strong on taking time to seek God and say, Now, if you say you don't have time to spend praying in the Spirit or time to spend alone with God, because you're too busy, well, perhaps you need to sell your house and get a smaller house. Or perhaps you have a, your car is too nice. Or maybe you have too many TVs. Why don't you sell some of them and drive an old car and live in a smaller house so you will have time. You don't have to work so hard to have such a big life. Because there should never be an excuse that allows us to not seek God. And you see married couples come into the church new and Pastor Dave would say that, and the one one of the couple would be excited. Oh, yes, I want more of God. Yes, I'm so excited. And uh, I'm going to sell the house. We're going to get a beat-up car, and I'm going to pray and see God. And then the, the other spouse, the other side of the couple, they're married, would not like it because they didn't want to give up. They didn't want to sacrifice. They weren't ready for that yet. And that's many times when people were in family that were connected to that is somewhat of an issue, that one is more passionate about serving God than the other. And so the argument then gets back to, hey, we should be in unity. And usually the one who has the higher standard, when you talk about unity, in the context that I was talked to about unity, the ones with the, the higher standard, the one who's more passionate, begins to have to stand down, have to give up things, to find peace with those in his life. And this is happens in churches, it happens in marriages, 
It happens with parents and children. It happens with family. It happens at workplaces where, where there's a fight for unity. There's a fight where there's a, not an, an instant agreement of what's what and who's who or how do we do this? How do we serve God together? And so there's usually a negotiation. And so Paul here says it's his pleasure, it brings pleasure to him. Uh, Fulfill my joy, he says, verse 2, by being like-minded of one accord, of one mind, same love. Having the same love and being of one accord and of one mind. So that's how you fulfill Paul's joy. And we read in Scripture that there's nothing more brings God such pleasure when he sees unity, when we dwell in unity together. And so the battle for me was, as a young preacher, being told, you need to be in unity with us and as a group in the city for God to bring revival. You know, one thing I noticed in all the times that we did stuff, there was never any special move of God in that kind of unity. Well, because it's not a godly unity they were talking about, it's a worldly unity. A worldly unity is a, a unity is an act of negotiations that, hey, you tell me what you like, I tell you what I like, and then we negotiate until we both can agree. Usually I give up stuff and you give up stuff, and we come down to a place where we're both okay with it. You know, if I go to the restaurant with my family, there's four of us and everyone's opinionated. Usually it takes a war to figure out where we're going to eat to make everyone happy because usually not everyone's happy because we didn't pick their favorite restaurant or their favorite type of food. But we negotiate. Hey, today I'll pick what I eat. Next time we get what you like. And we come to an agreement. Well, that's worldly unity where you negotiate. When you go to buy a car, you negotiate the price. One person says it's this much. You say, I'll give you this much. And you negotiate till you come to a place where both people are satisfied with the deal. But that's not godly unity. Paul goes on to describe what he means by godly unity in the next few verses. And I want to focus on that today because you'll find that as you follow God, and if you're you're watching these videos, hopefully there's a hunger being stirred in you to seek more of God and have more of God in your life. You'll find that many times as you have more of God and God begins to take more of a strength in your life and you begin to give God more of the reins of your life, that you'll come into conflict with many different things. One person I know that they love God and they're at a workplace or the workplace required them from the boss to act immorally with the finances. And they had to take a stand a godly stand against doing what the boss wanted so much that it got him fired. You know, if you said, hey, you need to be in unity, go ahead and be a crook, just a little crook, and you keep your job. Well, God bless them. They took a stand for righteousness, got fired, but God helped them get a better job. So standing up for righteousness is different than being in unity. There's some married couples where one wants to serve God, go to church and live a holy lifestyle, the other one doesn't. And God bless marriages when they go through this type of battle. You know, where I can see some people where they're both married before they're born again and one gets born again. And the other one says, wait a minute, why, why do we want to quit doing that? Why are we quitting doing this? And one gets passionate for God and the other one isn't. 
So there becomes a battle, especially when one decides to go to church faithfully or decides to listen and, and learn faithfully in the teachings and commit to God and commit their service to God and their life to God and over to prayer, that the other one begins to squirm and fight. Like, I didn't sign up for this kind of commitment. Why are we taking alcohol and throwing it down the drain? Why are we... Why are we not going out and doing this? And so I see many couples where they, they'll begin, one will begin to try to negotiate with the other one. Listen, I'll serve God with you on Sunday and, and on Wednesday if you go to the lake with me next Sunday. So we'll do one Sunday religious, the other Sunday, you know, and they begin to try to negotiate a lesser lifestyle. And it can seem tempting because it seems to bring a peace but a peace that comes under the worldly unity isn't really peace. The peace that comes from godly unity brings peace forever in a couple, in a family, in a, a situation. Because we're supposed to be a body. We're supposed to walk together. Jesus said in Matthew, let's go over there, Matthew chapter 10. And I'll start in verse 34. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother. Now pause right there, because this sounds contrary to a lot of the unity, peaceful preaching that I hear nowadays, that we're all supposed to get along and be nice to each other. If you're a Christian, you should be, everyone should think you're the best and love you and you're to be gentle and, and uh, push over. And, I mean, just so many things and that we're to get along with everyone. But here Jesus tells him something different. That he's, He said, I'm, I'm asking you to pick up a sword. I'm bringing a sword, not peace. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus is making quite a statement here that in following him, he's bringing a sword and an expectations for you to be ready to use that sword. Not against people, but to stand up for his will. Because if you love any of these people more than him, that means you'll live your life trying to please them. And many people have brought in this message into the church world that says, my job is to please my family, to win them over to God by participating with them in worldliness so that they all know Christ. I know one man came to me and, and his sons were worldly boys. And people would come to him and say, I'm going to get your kids saved. I'm a Christian. And the boys would say, well, meet me at the bar. So they go to the bar and they'd have a beer with this man's sons. And they would say, well, I'm, I'm bringing unity. It's the only way they'll listen to me is if I do what they do. So I should drink so I can get them saved. You know, there's a lot of missionary dating, they call it. You know what that is? That's when someone's saved, like someone who's not saved, so they're 
official reasoning to date someone who's not saved is I'm, I'm trying to bring them into the gospel. Well, that's not, God will never sacrifice his own to uh, bring someone in. He may ask you to lay your life down, but he's not going to sacrifice you to replace you with somebody else. This preacher was trying to win over uh, these boys who were, weren't saved and by drinking with them because the logic was, hey, I'm going to have an alcohol with them. And my opinion was he just wanted to drink alcohol and make it spiritual. And really what he did was he devalued his voice in their life that they just dismissed him because he couldn't have, didn't have the courage to stand up to them. People will think you have to act like the world to win them over don't understand scripture. Where do you see Jesus acting like the world? Now, he did have dinner with the world and didn't judge them for being like the world. I'm not telling you to judge the world for being sinners because they are sinners. So we expect them to sin. But he didn't participate with them and join with them. You don't have to get a tattoo to win people over to Jesus who are who have tattoos. You don't have to smoke a cigarette or do drugs or drink alcohol or go to the world or party or go to dance clubs to try to win people. That's a lie, and you know it's a lie. If you're doing it, you already know it's a lie. You're just trying to justify letting your flesh do what it wants. It's for the sake of unity. No, it's not. It's not unity at all. That's for the sake of you getting to do what you want to do. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to preach there. But I've seen a lot of lives destroyed by people justifying it in unity. Jesus here said that he's he's bringing a sword where man will be against his father and a mother against his daughter. And, and there's a battle. And he who loves them more than him are going to lose the whole thing. And those who... Those who let go of their life will gain a life. Verse 39, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So you have to let things go to find it. You can't live your life and give it to God. You have to let go of your life and live the life that he's given to you. And this is quite the picture because much of the religion in the world, in the, our Christian world, our American Christianity is, I live my life and I serve God. And I give God things. I give him my time. I give him some money. I give God things and he blesses me. And I live my life and I, I bless God. I honor God with it. But here he says, basically, you have to let go of your life and pick up his life. You have to let go of your rights to claim that you have a right. I'm, I have a right to be blessed. I have a right to, to have this and have that. And my dream is this and my dream is that. God is saying... You gotta let go of all those dreams. You gotta let go of all your rights and say, God, my life is in your hands. And wherever that leads me, that's where I will go. And while you're going down that path, you may end up having a conflict with people that are connected to you because they may not agree with the path you're on. And it's important I make a stop here because there's many Christians who do things in the name of God, but it's not God, and they blame it on God. And so they've caused god to have a bad name you know there's many 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 men i'll pick on men but it's both women but many men well and women but who have come to their family and their family they have responsibilities with a husband i can just read you and from scripture husband you have responsibilities as a husband doesn't matter how nice your wife is you still have to act like a husband and vice versa as a wife you have responsibilities as a wife that you signed up for at marriage that's your commitment to marriage. doesn't matter how your husband is. You have a commitment to marriage. 
there's many couples where one of them, I'll pick on the men especially, will say to the wife, hey, honey, I can't work and pay the bills. I can't uh, spend time with the kids. I can't do things because I have to go win the world and, and share the gospel. So they're out busy doing gospel things, but God didn't necessarily tell them to do it. So the distinction between doing godly things and being directed by God is very important. There's nothing wrong with going out soul winning. I think that's great. But if you are neglecting your kids to go soul winning and God didn't tell you to do that, then you're out of order. Be a man and go take care of your kids and then go soul winning on the side. But, you know, many people use that as an excuse. I I had one girl when I was youth pastor. I had a, a leadership team and one of the standards was you had to be in all the services. So this girl, she said, I have a big test Thursday morning, and is it okay if I skip Wednesday night church service so I can study for my test? I said, yeah, I totally understand that. Sure. And so she didn't come to the Wednesday night service. And at 9 o'clock after the service was over, a bunch of us went out to eat at a restaurant, and we walked into the restaurant, and there was this girl with her boyfriend. And they were having a late-night dinner. And I said, hey, what are you doing? I thought you were going to uh, be doing homework. Oh, oh, I did. I did. I did my homework during service, but this is I'm done now, and this is my time with my boyfriend. So really what she did, she just switched times. She, didn't, she chose not to give up time with her boyfriend and to go to church. She chose to give up church so she can study. And a lot of people do that when it comes to they uh, conveniently hear God for things that they like. You know, one time we were moving chairs at the church, and I had all these young men. I said, hey, we're going to move chairs on the church Saturday morning. Oh, oh, man, that's too bad. That's my prayer time, Saturday morning. And I respect prayer time because sometimes it's hard to find prayer. But here's a single young man. He has lots of time, but he chose to make that time his prayer time. And so he couldn't help out at the church to move chairs. And I said, well, what are you doing Saturday night? Well, Saturday night's my time with my friends. So I said, well, why don't you give up your friend time and make that your prayer time so that you can come and help move the chairs? So see, conveniently, sometimes people hear God for things, and they use God to justify not doing healthy, normal things. So I'm not talking about those type of people. Because it gets very personal when it's family. It's very personal when it's people next to you when there's disunity and when people use selectively doing things for God really to get out of doing things they should be doing. Because we should be able to do both. We should be able to have a good family and a good work ethic and pray and seek God at the same time. We don't have to neglect one or the other. Except for there are times when God directs you down a path, you have to do that no matter what people think. There are times people may not like what you think, or where God's leading you, but you still have to do that. When I was in, uh, I started to serve God. I was just 18, and I had a real moment uh, one summer, a real conviction of really giving my life to God. And I was right before I was to join university, and I was planning on being a teacher. And right before then, I had the direction of God to go into ministry. But the ministry wasn't paying hardly anything, but it was God directing me. So I, that meant I, could, I wouldn't go to university. I would go 
help out at the church full time. My parents, being good parents, sat me down. said, listen, we know your heart to serve God. We're very pleased with that. But, you know, we really don't want you being a bum, you know, your whole life. So we'd like for you to go get an education first. Which is very logical. That's very much what the world does. But I had a direction from God to respect my parents. And I understand they didn't see. I had, I've only 18. I just started to hear God. So, you know, it was a pretty good chance I missed it as much as may, as heard them. And so they said, well, listen, why don't you go get a career first? Like and they named a bunch of preachers. This preacher had a career and then he became a preacher. This guy had a career and then he became a preacher. Why don't you go get a career first and then, then go into ministry? Because then if it doesn't work out in ministry, you have something to fall back on. And and I knew my, me that if I had something to fall back on during the hard times, I probably would have fallen back on them many times over. And so I had to convince my parents. I appreciate that, Mom and Dad. And But I really feel that God's directing me this way. And so thank God for my parents. They stood behind me and encouraged me to be brave and follow God, even though it seemed very foolish at the time. Well, I was right. I did hear God and ended up following God since then. But it wasn't because I had agreement with my family. I had to be clear, I have to follow God. So part of the unity question is, how do we find unity with other believers, with other churches, with people close, family members, in our own body, our own group that we're with? How do we find unity? Is it a negotiation that we talk to one another and we decide, here's how we're going to do things? I'll give up this if you give up that. There's many couples where the one says, hey, I'm not going to give up this or that. And if you want, you come to the club with me and we'll we'll go out and party once a month. And then I'll go to church with you once a month. And, and there has to be a stand for godliness that sometimes costs you. It puts you in a fight. And this is where you have to understand when you're in God's will and people fight with you, they're not fighting with you, they're fighting with God. And it's not your job to bring down the fight for them to have an easier path. You, we want you to hear God and follow God. And I'm trying to describe a gospel unity, what it really means. There's been a big move over the last number of years for, for people to collect together because they believe the same. And they call it tribes. Find your tribe, find your group. I mean, there's enough groups out there that you'll find someone somewhere that agrees with you. It doesn't mean it's right because they agree with you. And that's one of the, the dangers of trying to find unity in groupness, in, in, hey, you believe like I believe? <laughs> All right, we're right, high five. And everyone else is wrong. So we find our group that believe with us. That doesn't mean it's God, just because you have a group that believes with you and likes what you get, what you say. That may be not God. And here's a description of unity that Paul writes to the church. And this is what I want to get across today. That as we are going further into God, you're going to find that probably it's going to have a fight that comes around you, either with friends, family, people that are in the body of Christ with you, where they disagree with you. And it may not be, you know, like everyone's allowed their opinion on Scripture. But when you hear God's voice, and God begins to build something in you, like holiness then you have to take a stand. See, I've never been re- rejected because I don't drink. 
I've been on many tables where people have have had alcohol. I don't drink alcohol. Not just not because of spiritual reasons as much as I've seen the damage that alcohol does in people's lives. My own history with my family, I've seen a lot of damage from alcohol. I refuse to bring alcohol into my house and I refuse to drink alcohol. Well, I've never had anyone offended because I don't drink alcohol. I've been in places where people drink alcohol and they're not offended that I don't join them. The hint is if they're not saved, I don't judge them. They're free to drink, but don't expect me to drink, and we're good. And no one has been offended by that. Having a high standard doesn't offend people. It's only if you use your high standard to lord it over people or to judge people that they might be offended. But taking a stand for the gospel, taking a stand for righteousness is very important. The idea that we'll get more people saved if we lower the standards is a lie. What do we get them saved to? A gospel without power? A gospel without holiness? Let's remove all our standards so people of the world might go, Oh, okay, I like that Jesus. That's a good one. I don't have to give up anything. I don't have to let go of anything. I can live my life and love Jesus. Praise God, this is great. And you're really destroying their lives by preaching that kind of gospel. Where truth is, Jesus is demanding. Jesus is God. God is an all-consuming fire. He'll burn everything in your life. He'll take over your life if you let him. And he'll lead your life if you let him. And he'll have you make an impact on this world that will shake the world for a long time. Or you can live your life and serve God. That's the difference. There's so much religion in our church today that says, Hey, I'm going to... I live my life. I go by the dreams that I have, by the personality that I have. I pick the jobs that I like. And I follow that. And I serve God, I give Him my time, I give Him my money, and I serve God. Versus, my life is over the moment I'm born again. It's not my life anymore, it's His. He guides my steps. He leads my path. He is the one, He's the author of my future, not me, not my past, not my dreams. How do you know the dreams that you have even came from God? You better make sure, sometimes that's a a sweet verse, God will give you your dreams. Well, it's the dreams that he gave you that he all may come to pass, not the ones that you have, the ones that he gave you. And some some of you may not like the dreams that he gives you because it may cost you more than, than what you think. And that's why we need to press in to God and get to know him. It's a very personal walk. And so there will be a conflict that will come when you start to follow God, you following God, you living by the standards of God, begin to affect others around you might be something small. One time when I was young, I was with a group of friends. They would like to go to a movie theater. And these were Christian friends. And uh, Christian friends aren't usually much better than worldly friends. And so we went to a movie, you know, you know a decent movie. And, and at the end of the movie, they all went and hid in different places of the movie theater. And then when the next movie started because it had many theaters in this one complex they would go to another movie for free and it was somewhat harmless but really it was stealing and I had a conviction that didn't come from my normal because normally I'd if I can get away with it I'd be happy to but I had a conviction rise up in me from my new nature telling me I don't want you to do this. this isn't what we do this isn't what a Christian does so now I'm in a conflict with my friends because you know when you're in when you're in a group and, and one of you stands up, it makes the rest not feel so good. So I had to say, I can't do this, guys. I'm going to go out and come back in and pay for the next movie. 
And so I did that, and they didn't like that, and they bugged me about it, but I had to take a stand. I had to take a stand for God. And in that, you're bringing unity towards who God is. And this is where we need to define unity the right way. And Paul does a great job of this as he talks on. Let's start again in chapter 2, Philippians, and verse 2. I'll start there again. And we'll read on, and we'll begin to see how he describes what unity is. Remember, religious unity, worldly unity, is a negotiation between you and someone else, and you're deciding what standards we have, what's okay, how do we do things. And so, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each one esteem others better than himself. Let each one of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you. So now he's telling you the key to Christian unity is this verse, verse 5, this statement, let this mind be in you. This is the key the secret, the answer to unity, the gospel way. See, he tells us to be like-minded, but he doesn't mean let's get in unity and negotiate what you and I together can agree and disagree. We agree to disagree, so we'll just put that aside. One pastor, we don't believe in praying in tongues, so we don't want you teach him about praying in tongues. We agree to disagree. You know, I don't believe tongues is for today. I disagree. Well, we agree to disagree, so let's take that and put it aside so we can be in unity. But here he says to be like-minded. He describes it in these these few words in verse 5. Let this mind be in you. So now he's telling you, be like-minded, and now I'm going to tell you what mind you are to go to. So the be in unity doesn't mean that you come to my mind and I go to your mind and we meet halfway being like-minded means that the mind of Christ is how we get in unity. That I grow to His mind, you grow to His mind, and then we're like-minded. So God will not tell you something and tell me something different. He won't give you a different standard than He gives me. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. So here we have some lines of how to be in unity. This means that you have to go to this mind, I have to go to this mind, and when we get there, we're in unity with Christ, not just with ourselves, with Christ. So to be in unity means that a lot of times we have to let go of our own ambitions, our own desires, our own thoughts, our own standards. God's not interested in my standard. He's interested in His standard. I'm the one who needs to change, never Him. Do you ever go to church and, and say, God, I've invited my aunt so-and-so to come to church and she's pretty stiff. So I'm excited to have her in church. You'll hear this testimony. Many times over in your life. God, please, aunt so-and-so is coming and she's very secular and she's, she thinks we're all ridiculous. Please, don't let the crazy lady who, 
who sometimes gets anointed and cries or sings and does the chicken dance. And don't let her come today because I don't want Aunt so-and-so seeing the crazy lady and thinking I'm like the crazy lady. She's not crazy. She's just a little bit passionate. But every church has one or two of them, people who are just open and they love to worship and they're a little loud, a little clumsy sometimes, get a little excited at the wrong times. And so you're praying, God, please don't let her come and don't let my aunt see the crazy lady or crazy man. It could be either gender can get extra excited in serving God. Please don't let my aunt see that person because that will put her off from you. So you've already thought about what, how God needs to reach your family member. And every time, this happens every time, it'll happen to you if you try it. You come to church, you bring aunt so-and-so who's stiff. She comes and she's judging the church. And who sits right in front of your aunt every time is the crazy lady, the one that you were praying that God wouldn't let show up that day, sits right in front of them because God is making sure that if you're going to come to me, if aunt so-and-so is coming to me, it's going to be because she's bowed down to me. Not because I made everything nice and sweet and perfect for her to get past her ambitions, but to confront her with the truth. Say, this is God, now you come to me. And God does it all the time because He is all-consuming. He's the same. And He wants us to come to Him. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. So here's some like being like-minded. means that we go to this place where we're willing to go to death, even to the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name. And so this is the path of God's promotion, that you choose not to live your life and then give it to God but we choose to give up our life. It's not our life. Think about this for a moment. If Jesus didn't come, you and I would be on a, a, a destined to be on a road to live our life on this earth and end up in hell. And there is no hope, no matter what we did, we were going to end up eternity in hell. But Jesus came and gave us a new life. He rescued us from hell. We owe him this time on this earth. We owe him our, our life. We owe him our path, or what God, I want to do what you want me to do. I want to live where you want me to live. I want to live by your standards, not my standards. We had nothing without him. He's everything. So when we choose to give up our life, we're saying, God, you tell me what to do. You tell me what standards. And then we fight our own self and anyone around us to go to those standards. And as you are growing to those standards and accepting the standards of God and the lifestyle of God and the path that God has for you, you probably will have a fight. Probably it's very intimate. It's very close. It might be a loved one. It might be family. A lot of times it's ourself, our own flesh fighting us, trying to get us to quit following God so uh, intensely. But to be like-minded means here's the mind of God. This is Christian unity. Now, don't be deceived if someone tells you you need to be in unity and lower your standards. You need to be in unity and and lower your holiness. You need to quit standing so strong for certain things because you're causing disunity. You're making me uncomfortable. 
Well, here he says, to be in unity means that I have to, my job is not to make you happy. My job is to go to that place of standards and thoughts and plans of God in my life. That's my job. That's all I have to do. I have to grow to that place and fight my own flesh. And you do the same. And when we get there, we'll find that we're in unity because we have the like-mindedness of Christ. And part of that is being humble. He humbled himself to become obedient, so obedient even unto death. And because of that, God exalted him. You want to have promotion from God? It's going to come from you laying your life down and stop striving to do good things, great things for God, and follow him. Because we all know sometimes when you follow God, it goes places that you didn't know you were going to go. God, why are you sending me over here when my calling is over there? He's got a plan and reason for it, and your job is to obey him. Verse 7, we'll just read a few more verses here. Well, verse 5, let this mind be in you. So now he's going to tell you and me, this is the mind that you aspire to, to have in you, and then you'll find yourself in unity with everyone else who is like Christ. And if they're not like that, they're not in unity. And it's not your job to lower the standards to bring unity. It's your job to raise the standard so others will believe they can do it. I have one young man, a friend of mine, we were both young, and I made a decision to sell out and serve God. And it cost me friends. It cost me, you know, I was 18, and it cost me friends. I just decided I was going to follow God. And he told me years later that, it inspired him because I made it. It inspired him that he can make it. Well, see, that's the point. You don't bring you ever get unity by lowering your standard and devaluing Christianity to say, hey, come on, it's all good. Come on in, come on in. That's not how you win people over. You win people over by holding on to the standard and loving them as they grow to the standard with you. And sometimes there's hardship because people around you don't like the, the standard you're keeping. It's not your job to lower your standard in the name of unity. That's one of my message today. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm going to tell you what mind you have to go to to find unity. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. I heard some preachers say, we need to drive the nicest car and live in the nicest house if we're ever going to win rich people. That was his reasoning for him to have a big, big house and a nice car. I'm not against those things, but his reasoning I didn't agree with, that rich people are not, some of the wealthiest people that I know are not as... uh, prideful as you think and they're quite humble and they're quite reasonable in the way they think about life and people are attracted to sincerity more than they are to riches and they say well you should have the biggest house on the block if you want to win the rich people i remember thinking yeah that's great but i know someone who owns the biggest house on the block and they own a uh, a strip club in town a bar are they better preachers than i am because they have more money the way to win the world is not to be like the world it's to be like christ And even if they complain because of your standards, the way to win them over is not to lower your standards. And he made himself no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearances of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him 
and given him the name which is above every name. God has a plan for you, and he has a plan to exalt you and to lift you up. The people who argue against you, complain against you the most, or resist you the most, they may not like your decisions to follow God. They may not appreciate the standards that you're keeping to press into God. And the more you go into God, the more God asks of you. They may want it, and they may not like it, but I want to tell you something. The moment you start putting God first in your life and you start holding that standard of holiness, of righteousness, the standard of listening and obeying, really listening to God, not just making excuses, uh, not just pretending to hear God conveniently. The moment you do that, they may not like it, they may complain about it, they may resist it, they may fight you over it. But I'm going to tell you something. They respect it. They respect you. Because you're willing to give your life to God. Because that's something they haven't come to that place yet. You are setting a path for them to follow when they're ready. And they will come to you for answers. Because you've earned their respect. They may not like it, but they'll respect you for it. I want to tell you this, and don't ever forget it. Be brave and follow God. Don't quit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we give you our life. We don't want to be fair-weather Christians moved here and there by our feelings or by what's good, what we like, what our flesh wants. We want to be strong, and we want to give you our steps, our life, everything in our future, our finances, our family, our jobs, our direction. It all belongs to you, Father. You've thought of everything. You are all I have. My life is in your hands. Father, today I thank you for your grace on us to obey you, to follow you, and to grow up in holiness and maturity that we will yield over the fruit of our life. will be many lives changed because of you in us. Not because of what we did, but because of you in us. Thank you for courage, that you give us courage, you give us strength to obey you and to rise up to be the believers that you called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. You can overcome anything. If there's something in your life that you feel is too overwhelming, that's a lie. You can overcome anything. Look it in the face and walk towards what God's told you to do. Be brave and follow God. Thanks for spending time with me today. God bless you.